We'll be reading tonight in our Bibles from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. In your pew Bible, uh, you can find this on page 1169. After we read from the Word of God, we'll also read from our confession, uh, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 34, the second part of that Lord's Day, and you can find this on page 242 in the Forms and Prayers book. We'll be considering the first commandment uh, where our covenantal Lord instructs us that we are to have no other gods before Him. And so in connection with that, we read from the Gospel according to Mark chapter 12. We'll begin reading at verse 28, and we'll read through verse 34. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second like it is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question Him. Thus far for this evening our reading from the Word of God. We then turn to Lord's Day 34. We'll be looking at questions 94 and 95. 94 asks, what does the Lord require in the first commandment? And the answer that I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures, that I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. Question 95 asks, what is idolatry? And the answer is, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed Himself in His Word. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the giving of God's law, as we have it recorded both in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, while it applies, God's law does, to all of humanity, is given especially to the covenant people, to the church. It is to you and to myself as we make up members of that church, of that gathered community that God has redeemed out of spiritual darkness. It is especially to you and to myself that our Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. Our Lord calls, demands, deserves a relationship of exclusivity. Now, the covenant of grace is essentially this bond. I will be your God and you will be my people. And we will fellowship together in an exclusive relationship of fidelity. 
you shall have no other gods before me. It's a simple command, yet it is not an easy command. It is not an easy command for us to follow, especially as we live in the midst of our world and as we are bombarded uh, with all sorts of messages and all sorts of temptations. Uh, John Calvin rightly said uh, that the human heart is an idol factory. And while the form of idols uh, may evolve as history continues to unfold itself, the temptation of idolatry remains a very strong temptation also for yourself and myself. And as we seek to express a life of gratitude, we are reminded of the danger of idolatry. We'll notice as we unpack our theme this evening that the first commandment calls for a proper love for God. And this proper love for God is one that, first of all, recognizes one God, and then secondly, avoids all idolatry, and then thirdly, encompasses all of life. So against the backdrop of the commonality of idolatry and the temptation of idolatry, our covenantal Lord calls us to a proper love for Him by recognizing one God, by avoiding all idolatry in a way that encompasses all of one's life. So the first commandment, when our Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me, we are solemnly obliged to recognize the existence of one only true God. We are bound to acknowledge God is God, and God alone is God. And this is a truth that we hold by faith. A faith that is a knowledge and also a trust or a reliance upon the self-revelation of God, especially as we have it within His Word. And so we are to recognize the existence of one only God as He has revealed. And thanks be to God that He has so clearly revealed Himself to us, yes, to an extent in the realm of creation which displays His divine majesty and His power, And we can study that book of creation, and we can see many of the attributes of God, and we can be impacted by a profound sense of appreciation and an appropriate response of humility. Uh, But our God more fully and more clearly reveals His existence and His nature to us in His Word. And one of the most basic things that is revealed in His Word is that God is God alone. You can think of the text that our Lord Jesus Christ quotes uh, here in Mark 12, uh, what is found there in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel. And that word hear has this understanding uh, of acknowledge with understanding. So understand that the Lord your God is one. This is the most fundamental, the most basic building block of a Christian worldview. There is only one true God. Uh, This same thematic truth is echoed by the prophets. Uh, We mention Isaiah 45, verse 5, where the Lord says through Isaiah to, again, His covenant people, I am the Lord, and there is no other. 
Now you know if you know your Bible history that the covenant people of Israel were often tempted and influenced by the idolatry of the surrounding cultures, the surrounding nations, and their pretend gods. Uh, The idols that they had fabricated out of their own imagination were a downfall uh, that led to the apostasy of Israel. And so the prophets were given this ministry to go and to remind and also to pronounce in the midst of the covenant people that there is only one God. And so Isaiah says, I am the Lord, or really the Lord through Isaiah, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. And we are to receive this truth with humble faith. And so a large part of the opportunity that I have this evening is to proclaim to you that there is one God and then to call you, as I call myself, to acknowledge the reality of that with a humble, sincere faith. And this God is the God who is to be worshipped, who is to be served, who is to be honored, who is to be the object of our highest affections. And so I would also encourage you to study this God, to study His self-revelation. Know your God. Because as you come to know your God as He has revealed Himself, you'll also recognize there is one God in absolute sovereignty. And I would submit to you the best antidote or the best remedy For many, if not most, of what troubles individuals in this life is to have a healthy understanding of the sovereignty of God. That God rules over everything. And that His rule is a good rule. It is good that God rules over everything. And I say that this is one of the most comforting truths Uh, Along the lines of Romans 11, verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Because if we're honest, and we can be honest because the Scriptures are honest and the Psalms are honest, the psalmist is honest, if we're honest, this life is not always such an easy life. It might be that the Medical diagnosis is not what we were anticipating or what we were expecting or what we were desiring. It might be that the condition of our health is not what we would have thought it would have been at this stage in our lives. It might be that our employment is not what we had imagined when we began our vocational labors in the strength of our youth. It might be that our relationships are not what we had envisioned when we dreamt of how our life would go. Uh, What is the remedy for all of the uncertainties from our perspective in life? To know that God is absolutely sovereign. And not just in a cold, abstract sort of a reign, but that this is my Father's world. And that that rule includes every single aspect of the created realm. So as you face the uncertainties from your perspective, and as you encounter what you might call disappointments, 
Are you able to weather the storm by leaning heavily into the sovereignty of your God? This is what is included in a proper love for God that recognizes there is one God who has revealed himself as a sovereign God. And in his absolute sovereignty, he calls us to avoid all idolatry. And that brings us into our second point. Idolatry is one of these words that I think we constantly have to be reminded of what exactly it is. It's a word that we become very accustomed to hearing, maybe even very accustomed to using. Uh, But our catechism helps us when it identifies uh, in question 95 what idolatry is. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God. Now, sometimes when we think of idolatry, uh, we think perhaps of Moloch, or we think of Baal, or we think of some image of some material construction, uh, something made out of wood or, or stone or some precious metal. Uh, and we think of what we would imagine ignorant people uh, of a former day bowing down and engaging in all sorts of perverse rituals around these images that they have formed and fashioned with their own hands. And that certainly is and was a form of idolatry. But that's not so common in our day, but that does not mean that idolatry is not common in our day. Now, most likely you're not going to drive through our city streets and our neighborhoods and, and see a golden calf or, or, or see uh, the image of Moloch or Baal. But make no mistake about it, the idols are there. And they're not just in our big cities, in our liberal cities, but they are also in our rural communities, and they lurk in our own homes, and they attempt to sneak into our own hearts. And we could spend quite a length of time identifying various idols that our culture and our hearts fabricate, but it really all boils down to ultimately the one great idol, the idol of self the idol of myself. Now, this takes a variety of forms in our culture. Uh, You can think of what is known as narcissism, which is really just a fancy word for an extreme form of selfishness, a being consumed with myself, so that my life centers upon me, what I want, what I'm doing. And what happens in our modern form is that we're not so content just to have ourselves bow before the idol of self. We want everyone else around us also to bow down to the idol of ourselves. And we are a culture that is infatuated with ourselves. But it's not just in this form of narcissism. You can think also of what's known as hedonism. So we're consumed, we're infatuated with ourselves, 
and we want to get ourselves as much pleasure as we can. And so we're tempted to think that the goal of life is to just perhaps have the most experiences, the best experiences, the most laughs, the most adventures, the most attainments. Really, all of this boils down again to placing ourselves in the position of God so that we trust in ourselves rather than in our God. You could look at it from another perspective, humanism and the arrogance that we as human beings are so capable of. How many times don't we hear perhaps a politician, perhaps a business person, perhaps a sports uh, person present themselves as having the potential for unprecedented success and bringing us all of the answers to humanity's questions. These are just a few of the ways in which idolatry tempts our hearts. And and now there are many, many things in life that, that are good. But good things can become idols if they are viewed in a wrong perspective. For example, work is good. Food is good. Rest is good. Relationships are good. And some of the enjoyments that the Lord gives to be enjoyed in the proper context of relationships are good. But when we make these things the utmost of our affections, and when we put our trust in these things and place them either above God or even on an equal standing with God, then we have taken something that is good, and because we misplace it in life, it becomes an idol. And if you take work, if we understand God is the greatest object of our affections and he has gifted us with the ability to work and, and we then work in order to honor God and to glorify God, that, that's proper. But when we move work up alongside of God and we say, I have a dual purpose in life, yes, I serve God, but I also I live to work, or even when it goes a step higher and we have this sense of, I live to work. Or you can do the same thing with food. Obviously, food is very, very good. And in the enjoyment of fine food is good. But when we say, ah, I live to serve God and to serve food, or when food becomes the the priority in life. And I'm just picking these at somewhat random. Uh, You can do the same thing uh, with athletics. God has created our bodies as wonderfully formed and fashioned and knit together, capable of doing amazing things, and God has gifted some people to develop those gifts, and all of that can be done to the glory of God. But when we place it alongside of God in our life, and when I put my trust a little bit in God and a little bit in my abilities, then we've fallen into the dangerous trap of idolatry. What is idolatry? 
inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only one true God. And a helpful way to identify if something has become an idol is to ask yourself if you could live without it. Could you live without it if God took it away from you? Could you live without work if God in His providence took it away from you? Could you live without, and we understand physically it's impossible to live without food, but could you live without in an abundance of fine food if God took it away? Could you live without your bank account if God took it away? Could you live without athletics if God took it away? If you hesitate, it might be because there's a danger of idolatry. One thing the psalmist says, I have desired, the Lord. He is to be the object, the highest object of our joy, of our contentment, of our sense of, of purpose. The Lord and the Lord alone. You might say, but what is the great danger of idolatry? Well, the great danger is identified by our catechism. Answer 94, it begins, that I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. And, and what the catechism is doing is really summarizing what our Lord Jesus Christ himself says in Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. He goes on and he says, For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, I have to admit and acknowledge that I've never been able to ski, whether on water or on snow. In Michigan, downhill skiing is somewhat more popular, I think, than here in Iowa. And I don't know if it's the same. I think it's the same with water skiing. Until you become gifted enough where you can ski on one ski or maybe even ski barefoot, but I always had trouble skiing because the two skis wanted to go in different directions. And you can ski that way for a split part of a second. But it is absolutely impossible to ski down a hill or to ski across a lake with two skis going in different directions. The collapse of your person is inevitable and usually quite disastrous, although it might be comical to those who watch. In a similar vein, you cannot serve two masters because eventually, eventually you will have to choose one. 
Now, that's not the same as saying you can serve God and appropriately appreciate the gifts that He has given. We're not advocating for some form of radical asceticism where you get rid of all material things and anything that might bring you any sense of joy and you just go as a hermit and live out in some desert community or desert isolation. What we are saying is if you try to have two great purposes in life that coordinate, it's impossible. There can only be one Lord. You can only ultimately serve one God. And you can see this play out in the life of Israel in the Old Testament. Because what happens is, okay, yes, they said, okay, we are, we are the covenant people of God. We will serve the Lord our God. But then they began to look around at the nations and the gods of the nations. And they said, ah, but we like a little bit of that too. We're going to diversify our spirituality. And just a note to the young people of the congregation, especially what often happened was the young people of Israel looked at the surrounding nations and saw beautiful potential mates. And so they found their spouses from the nations. And and this was the downfall of Solomon. He saw the beautiful women in the surrounding nations, and when he brought them into his palace, they brought their idol gods. Now Solomon was given a heart of wisdom, but not a perfect heart of wisdom. He was not the greater than Solomon. He's not the Lord Jesus Christ. And this really was his downfall. Because then he began to compromise. He began to try to worship God and these idols. And you can think of the northern nations as they built their high places, as they sought to synthesize their religious expressions. It doesn't work. Apostasy is inevitable unless the Lord brings about reform. You cannot serve two masters. There can only be one ultimate desire in the heart. And that desire must be the Lord himself. And so you can listen to the words of 1 John 5, verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Well, what is the best way to keep oneself from idolatry? It is to be consumed with a proper love for God that encompasses all of life. And that's our third point. You want to avoid idolatry? Have a life that is centered upon God and God alone. We refer here to what is summarized in answer 94, the positive side. The negative side is that I avoid, shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayers to saints or other creatures. The positive side is that I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor Him. Uh, This is the comprehensive aspect of the Christian life. 
Now this is what, and we've referred to this verse before, Psalm 27, verse 4, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And this love is a love that has to flow out of the center heart, the spiritual essence of our very being, so that we are consumed with a desire for the Lord. As we recognize, He is the highest object of all of our affections. He is the highest good. This is not, this is not some type of slavish dread, fear. Well, I guess I can only live for the Lord. I wish I could do something else, but all I can do is desire of the Lord and glorify the Lord. It, it shouldn't be this drudgery, but it ought to be an overwhelming delight. That the God of heaven and earth is in a relationship with me. By His grace and by His mercy, He has called me. He has redeemed me. He desires to fellowship with me. He desires to walk with me. He desires to talk with me. And so I ought to find that to be my greatest delight. And now if we understand this, we'll, if we're honest, we'll acknowledge that doesn't happen automatically. And that's why as we move through these commandments, uh, we see continually uh, our desperate need of grace and of mercy for renewing grace, for enabling grace, and also for forgiving grace because we don't love God as we should. And so we come and we confess our sins, but then we also, we beg of the Spirit, Lord, indwell my heart, win over my affections, incline my will, enlighten my mind that I might more and more and more love you, serve you, honor you, glorify you. And I want to borrow tonight and try to emphasize this, borrow a phrase from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, uh, the first question and answer uh, of their catechism, the shorter catechism, what is the chief purpose of man? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I want to ask you, and I reflect upon this question as well, do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy Him? Do you enjoy the smiles of the providence of your Father? The union that you have with the Son? The indwelling, comforting, companionship of the Spirit. Do you enjoy God? And I ask the question because there is a danger, and I feel it, and it's especially dangerous in our faith communities that we know much about God but we don't necessarily enjoy Him. Enjoy communion with Him. Enjoy living with Him. Enjoy serving Him. Enjoy just simply experiencing His love. And at times, we find ourselves prone to some type of 
pharisaical legalism that we're just grinding out the Christian life. We're just doing what we should do. And we're just doing it better than anyone else. And we just can't believe that others aren't doing the Christian life like we're doing the Christian life. And when you find that mentality creeping up, pause and ask, am I enjoying God? Of course, according to His revealed will, in the experience of the forgiveness of sins, according to His commandments. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Now we are certainly not advocating for an idleness in life. But would you be content to just behold the beauty of the Lord? You know, there's so much speculation about the afterlife, about heaven, about glory. What will we be like? Will we know one another? What will we do? The Bible reveals to a certain extent, some things, but it leaves many things unrevealed. But especially when you look in the book of Revelation, what is the church triumphant doing as they're gathered around the throne of the Lamb? Are they not just simply beholding the beauty of the Lord? Would that suffice for you and for me? Would we be content to just simply behold the beauty of the Lord in all of His majesty and His glory and His grace and His mercy and His love and His faithfulness and His covenantal mercies? Well, by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, may we be a congregation of persons who display with the forgiveness of sins and the enabling grace of God in Jesus Christ, a proper love for God by recognizing there is one only true God who calls us away from the idols that our hearts and hands so want to fabricate. He calls us away from that. He calls us to serve Him, to enjoy Him, to glorify Him, to behold His beauty, both now and forevermore. Amen. Our Father in heaven, uh, we come into your presence and we confess that we have mixed desires within our hearts. We do love you. We do desire to behold your beauty. And yet we're like little children, so, so easily distracted. We look here and we look there and we thank you then for Sabbath days. We thank you then for your word. We thank you for your commandments. That draw us back, that remind us that there is one only God, that warns us of the dangers of idolatry. Father, forgive us for the times that we have pursued idols, the times that we have built idols, the times that we have worshipped idols. 
and pour out your grace within our hearts uh, that we might more and more turn away from the old man and that we might more and more come to express the reality of the new man that in our minds and in our wills and in our affections we might have a single eye to glorify your name and to enjoy you forever. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.